song, songs we sing, and the uh, the Apostles' Creed, and then the verses from Acts we're going to read to talk about his ascension and him coming again. And it's all it's not coordinated. It just the way the the Lord when we when we taught in third and fourth grade. One of the key things we tried to teach the children, if God tells you something once, man, listen to it. But if he tells you twice, like truly, truly, really pay attention. Like he's trying to tell you something. And that's the kind of the way I take this when he, in the Apostles' Creed, we talk about his ascension and him coming again in that last song. And now we're about to read about it. It's, it's just amazing. So this is from John chapter 7. Uh, verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And then we're going to Acts chapter 1, and you're going to see Jesus talking about this same subject, about the Spirit again. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And we just read about that from John when he was telling them this is coming. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on him, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Amen, Brother Mark. I'm with you, man. That's amazing. I, we didn't plan John 7, 37 to 39 to be on Ascension Sunday. That just kind of fell that way. I mean, that's amazing. And Pete, thank you for your introductory words uh, as we read our, as we recited our Apostles' Creed, which if you're visiting with us, we do that every fifth Sunday uh, of, the, of the month. Uh, we uh, remind ourselves of the basics by reciting the Creed. And when you, Pete, when you said you wanted to uh, make, comment on a, on, a, on a troublesome part of the Creed that people have prob problems with, uh, I thank you for reminding us about what Catholic means, little c Catholic, not capital C, little c, universal. But I thought you were going to go to the line about he descended into hell, because that's a controversial line in the creed. In fact, uh, growing up as a Methodist, I didn't even know that line was in the creed, because the Methodist church took it out of the creed. So I didn't even know about that line until later on in my life after getting saved and and, and growing and maturing, becoming to the Reformed faith. And, uh, and there it is, he descended into hell. 
And so I thought that's where you were going. So since you did, and I'll do that real quick. If, you're, if that's a troublesome line for you, we don't believe that Jesus physically went to hell. We believe what that's telling us is what happened at the cross when Jesus said, my God, my God. The only time Jesus referred to God as God, he always, in every other prayer, in every other place when he talks about him, he calls him Father. But at that point, with our sins, our, our boatload, our truckload, our shipload, our cargo, Lord, our immense sins placed upon him. God turned his back. God, the, the fellowship between God and the Son were broken for the first and only time in redemptive history. And Jesus referred to his Father as, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's happening at that point is Jesus is experiencing hell for us, so we'll never have to. That's the good news of the gospel. Dear unsaved friend, if you're here today, Jesus has experienced hell at the cross, experienced the punishment we deserved in our place. And that's what we think the creed means when it says he descended into hell. All right, well, uh, last week uh, we began an important study, uh, a beautiful corporate activity. If, if you're visiting with us, we want you to get in on this. We are together doing what uh, Paul urges to do in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We are beholding the glory of the Lord together. We are considering Jesus, as Hebrews 3.1 tells us to do, and we're doing that together as a church family. We are looking to Jesus. We are fixing our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12.2, together, together as a body, as brothers and sisters, as, as God's family. We are, according to Psalm 27.4, we are gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, and we're doing that together. What a sacred privilege. What a precious activity that we get to engage in every Sunday morning. And we're doing that by studying many of the names of Jesus that Scripture assigns to him. And as we do this, we are trusting the Spirit of the Lord to transform us into a greater likeness of Jesus week by week and day by day. As 2 Corinthians 3.18 says will happen. We, with unveiled face, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into his likeness from glory to glory. That's what we're praying will happen. That's what the Scripture says will happen if, if we're focused, if we're beholding, if we're truly looking at Jesus from the pages of Scripture. According to God's Word, we will be becoming more like Jesus together, which is a very good thing, both individually and corporately. So, I ask you a question. Did you walk in this morning praying the John 12, 21 prayer? The John 12, 21 prayer. I know you all know what that, those of you who were here last year or last week, I know you all know what that prayer is because you were here and you were listening and paying attention. So, I know you know what the John 12, 21 prayer is. But for those who weren't here last week and for the great benefit of those who weren't listening and forgot, uh, we'll tell you again what it is. The John 12, 21 prayer. Sir, we wish, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Now, if you didn't walk in praying that, let's do that now together, together. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, dear Lord, dear Father, precious Holy Spirit, we want to see Jesus. We long to see Jesus. We hunger to see Jesus. In all his glory, in all his perfection, in all his majesty and beauty and splendor. He truly is beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. And we know that one day our physical eyes, our glorified eyes, will fall upon him. But until that day, Father, please, we ask in the name of your Son and by your sanctifying Spirit and from the pages of your precious Word, give us a greater, clearer view of Jesus now. 
Now, even in our limited sinful capacity, give us a clearer view of Jesus. Open our spiritual eyes a little bit wider to the wonder of who he is. And may we leave here seeing him more clearly, following him more nearly, and loving him more dearly. And this is our prayer in the name of the one whose names we are studying, the name of Jesus. Amen. In one of my favorite little books, it's my favorite giveaway book. Some of you may ha- have this book because I've given it to you, unless you've given it away to somebody else. Uh, Joe Thorne's little book called, entitled Note to Self. In one of the chapters of that book, uh, Thorne writes this. The bigger and more biblical your understanding of who Jesus is, the more likely he is to be an object of love and affection and love and adoration. And the more likely that the idols that aim, to, that aim at capturing your attention and swaying your allegiance will lose their power. Tony Williams, how you doing, buddy? You just walked in, you just slipped in from the side. Man, it's unbelievable. Good to see you, buddy. Unbelievable. And I echo the welcome of, the, of, our, of our first elders that were up here to the visitors here. A lot of family members and friends on this Memorial Day weekend. What a blessing to see everybody. Man, Tony, still late for church. Nothing's changed. <laughs> I love you, buddy. It's good to see you, man. Amen. Okay. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Let's go back to the thorn quote because I botched it. I messed up some words in it, and then Tony just blew me away. Uh, uh, We're just waiting for them to come home. We're waiting for them to come home. Uh, But let's go back to the thorn quote again because I want to get it right. He says, the bigger and more biblical your understanding of who Jesus is. Okay. That's our goal in this study. We, we want our understanding of who Jesus is to be bigger and more biblical, okay? The more likely he is to be an object of love and adoration, and the more likely that the idols that aim at capturing your attention and swaying your allegiance will lose their power. Now, what are some of those idols that sway our allegiance from Jesus? Things like cell phones. Not you, Ray. I know it's not you, buddy, okay? I, I, I love it when I, my church family comes up to me after church, after I've mentioned something about phones. I say, well, here, look, I want to show you the app I'm using. It's my Bible app, you know, and, and uh, so, yeah, praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord, okay? But let's, let's admit that. That thing can grab our attention at, at other times, okay? Uh, other gadgets that we have, um, uh, Girlfriends, boyfriends, sleep, popularity, the list of attention capturing idols just goes on and on. It's different for every one of us. And a lot of it, we share the same ones on our list. Okay. Thorne continues This is why you sometimes lack earnestness for the kingdom and the glory of God. Why? Maybe you fall asleep in church or. Don't make, don't make activities that spur spiritual growth a priority. Secular and temporal activities are prioritized above activities that will make you more like Jesus. While you overflow, back to Thorne's quote, while you overflow with passion concerning temporal things. Overflow with passion concerning temporal things, things like, well, you make your list, vacations, money, material possessions, back to gadgets again, pets, politics, sports. You, you make your list. And then Thorne wraps it up by saying this, instead of making a joyful noise and singing earnestly for the victory Christ has over sin, sins and death, you express a dispassionate approval and mouth the words to the songs sung in worship. But there is more fire in your belly and shouts of joy when your favorite college football team is victorious over the competition. This is probably why the church is shrinking in North America. 
Because small Jesus does not inspire awe. Small Jesus does not command respect. Small Jesus does not lead to worship or compel us to talk of him, much less suffer for him. And small Jesus is too little to arrest the attention of the world. So which Jesus is in your life right now? Which Jesus is in your life? Small Jesus? Well, how do you test that? Well, is anything in your life bigger than him? If the answer to that is yes, then yes. You're worshiping or trying to worship and getting bored by it. Small Jesus. Or is Jesus big to you? Is he big to you? Is he huge? Does he dominate your mind and your thoughts and your prayers and your relationships? Is there nothing that's above him? Which Jesus does your life and actions project? When people look at you and look at your actions, are they looking at a, at a person that is worshiping big Jesus or that is giving lip service and tipping the hat to small Jesus? Big, big or small? Which one? Big Jesus, small Jesus. Which, which one is he? Now, I realize for, for maybe a handful in here, it's, it's, it's no Jesus. Okay. But... But I'm, I'm talking primarily right now to professing Christians who, for whatever reason, has allowed Jesus to slide down the list of priorities. So I pray that when we prepare to come to this table in about 30 minutes, maybe 45, 50 hour, I don't know, okay. You'll, exa- you'll ask, Lord, search me, big Jesus or small Jesus. Where do I fall? So my prayer this morning and every morning, every Sunday morning, is that our spiritual eyes would be opened wider to the wonder of Jesus as we open this book every Sunday for the next several months and, and ponder together his glorious names and may jesus always be big at rcc will you pray that with me that jesus would always be huge the dominant factor at rcc may he be the center and the heartbeat of who we are and may he be big in every individual life that makes up this body May we all hear the exhortation of Puritan pastor and author Octavius Winslow, who encourages us to, quote, cultivate frequent and devout contemplations of the glory of Christ. Immense will be the benefit accruing to your soul. Beholding Jesus will be immense to the benefit of your soul. And as we grow in our knowledge of him, may our Father in heaven be glorified. Now, as, has, as already has been mentioned, today is Ascension Sunday. You'll notice that the white uh, cloth has been removed from the cross. That means that Jesus has returned, historically speaking, has, has returned back to heaven. He's no longer on the earth. For those 40 days he was on the earth, we kept the white cloth up there. Okay? You know, per, you know the cl- cloth colors, right? Purple cloth, Palm Sunday, entry of the king into Jerusalem. Pom- purple, royal color. Okay? Good Friday, black cloth, death. Death, the, ones, the one they were um, shouting for at the beginning of the week, Hosanna, Hosanna, and now they're shouting crucify him. And Pilate 
buckled, and that's what happened. And so the black cloth goes up on Good Friday, then on Sunday morning, on Easter morning. The white cloth goes up, new life, and it stays up there for the 40 days that Jesus remained on earth, glorified, glorified Jesus, resurrected Jesus, stayed on earth to, to encourage and to teach and to train his disciples and get them ready to take the baton. Yep, there it is. They took it, and that's what we read about in the book of Acts. But the white cloth is gone now because on that Ascension Sunday, Jesus returned to the Father. You know, actual Ascension Day was Thursday, okay, but we, this is the closest Sunday to it, so we remember it today. Um, our springboard sermon text that Mark read was an account of that dramatic and historical event. If you recall what Mark read, uh, or as you've read many times, I'm sure, the disciples want to know about the timing of the restoration of the kingdom, okay, is that at this time you will restore the kingdom. And Jesus tells them, hey, don't worry about that, that it's not for them to know about times or seasons which are under the control of a sovereign God. What they need to concern themselves with is waiting for the promised Holy Spirit who will empower them to be witnesses of Him. In other words, if I could put it in a pithy little statement here, okay, Jesus tells them in response to their question about the restoring of the kingdom, He tells them, don't focus on the full restoration of the kingdom. Instead, focus on your faithful representation of the king. Got it? Don't focus on the full restoration of the kingdom. Focus on your faithful representation of the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. And by the way, I'm sending you the power for that. Now, you just go to Jerusalem. You wait. You wait, okay? You wait, and I'm sending you the power. And 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes. On that 50th day after the resurrection, that's what we call it Pentecost, which will be next Sunday, Pentecost Sunday. Okay. Don't worry about timing of things. Don't worry about future big events. You just focus on being my witness. Listen, beloved. That message for followers of Christ has not changed. It has not changed. Don't worry about times and seasons because what we learn from Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything. There's a time for everything, and every, all, those, all those times are under the control of a sovereign God. So don't worry about times and seasons. Don't worry about when big future things are going to happen. Don't worry about even the timing of our Lord's return. We must focus on representing Him until those things do happen by being His faithful witness. By being filled with the Spirit that Jesus sent us to be that witness. If we go to Luke, we read this account in Luke 24. In fact, uh, the passage that, that Mark read, you know, it began in verse 1. That's usually where books begin, or chapters begin, verse 1. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's, what's the first book? That's Luke. He's talking about the book of Luke. And in Luke 24, we read, we read this. He, descri he describes it like this, beginning at verse 50. He says, And he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, note this. Isn't this interesting? They worshipped him. Okay, direct words from the text. They worshipped him after he was carried up into heaven. I mean, that's exactly what it says, right? 
And while he blessed them, he parted from them. He parted from them. He's gone. He's gone. Okay, he's parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him. That's what we're doing, okay? They worshiped him after he left. And we've taken that baton of worship from them. That's what God's people are still doing. We're doing what the first disciples, what the apostles began when Jesus left. The idea of worshiping the one who has returned to heaven. He parted from them, and they worshiped him. He hadn't come back yet, but we're still worshiping him, and we're still going to do that with great joy and with great thanksgiving and with focus and, and with, with our minds fixed on things above and not on things of this earth, not on the things that want to steal our, our loyalty and our devotion and that's what Paul was worried about with the church at Corinth. I'm concerned just that as the serpent deceived Eve, he will come in and do the same thing to you. Did God really say? Another message for another time. They worshiped him after he was carried up into heaven. And that's what we're doing this morning and every Sunday morning and with our lives and actions between Sundays. And it says, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. And that's what we want to keep doing. They got the ball rolling, right? They got it rolling. That's what we want to keep doing. We want to continually and consistently gather here, not in a temple, but in our blessed little square brick building to bless God, to worship him. To honor him with our presence, our songs, our offerings, our attentiveness to his word, our communion, our encouragement of one another, everything that goes with corporate worship. Joyfully happy to be here, thankful to be here, fully engaged, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, not lethargic, not half dead or fully asleep, not looking like we just stepped in something, but wholeheartedly engaged. Look, look back at Acts 1, verses 10 to 11. Though the ascension was the glorious climax of Jesus' first coming, there's a more glorious event yet to come. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why are you stand looking into heaven? I love that question. I've always loved that question. Why are you standing there looking into heaven? I'm, I'm sure that's what I would have been doing. <laughs> what has just happened? Okay, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way. He will come in the same way. He left in the clouds. He's going to return with the clouds. He will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Beloved, beloved, our king, our king is coming back. He's seated at the right hand of God right now, and as we just recited together from thence, from that place, from that position of power and authority at the right hand of God, he will come to judge the living and the dead. You can count on that. You can bank on that. But don't worry about the timing of it, right? Jesus has already dealt with that with those first followers. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about the restoring of the kingdom. Don't worry about the, the not yet part, Okay. Don't worry about that. You worry about being a witness. Don't worry about the timing of Jesus' return. Just strive to live for Jesus day by day and moment by moment in an attitude of, as we said at the end of 2 Peter, right? Peter dealt with this, an attitude of what we called back then productive waiting. Productive waiting. We're not twiddling our thumbs. We're not just sitting there waiting for Jesus to come back. It's productive waiting. We're waiting, but it's productive waiting. As we said when we wrapped up 2 Peter, we are expecting Jesus while we are reflecting Jesus. With me? Okay? We reflect and expect. And the direct object for both of those activities is the same, Jesus. We reflect Jesus. We expect Jesus. We know he's coming back. We're not worried about the timing. Until that day, we're going to reflect him. And if we die before he comes back, man, we'll just be in that... That, that in-between time, that, that, that 
waiting time that not purgatory, okay, not soul sleep. We're with the Lord. Hadn't got our bodies yet, our, glor- our final glorified bodies yet. Not sure exactly whatever, what it's all going to be like, but it's not complete yet. It's not final yet. That day is coming. But until that day, we're going to reflect Jesus. We're going to fix our minds on him, and we're going to run the race, and we're going to press on. We're going to persevere for the glory of God and the good of one another and the good of our community. Yeah, we're expecting Jesus big time. But it's productive expecting. We're, we're reflecting him. Let your, let your good works shine before man, Jesus said that they may see those good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, let's springboard off the truth of Christ's ascension, okay, and examine the names of Jesus that are closely associated with his ascension. So today, as I I told you last Sunday, we will abandon our alphabetical study, and deal with three titles that are directly connected to the fact of the ascension. Directly connected. You could probably say most all of them are connected, but most directly connected to the ascension. And we'll start with the one we did last week, get a quick review and some added comments. So as the ascended one, as we introduced last week, Jesus is our advocate. Remember the verse we used, 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The Greek for advocate is parakletos, means a helper, a helper, such as we said last week, as an attorney in a legal matter. In his exalted position at the right hand of God, Jesus serves as our defense attorney. Okay, we talked about that last week. Uh, we used, the example we used, or the illustration we used, was the Zechariah 3 text. Today I want to illustrate it with a New Testament text, Acts chapter 7. Act, we're in, already in Acts, that was our springboard, Acts chapter 7, and the first, the death of the first martyr, stoning of Stephen. Okay, if you're familiar with Acts 7, you know that most of that chapter is a, uh, a, a beautiful recital by Stephen of Jewish history. He kind of just gives I mean, all the big events of the history of the people of God, okay? Uh, and then at the end, he has some pretty, pretty straightforward, uh, I might call them seething words of judgment at the end of his speech. Uh, which are pointed at the Jewish authorities. He basically lets them have it. Uh, Pick it up at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who deceived the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Well, uh, nobody's laughing right now. And verse 54 tells us what's going on now. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Ever done that? Ground your teeth at your kids? Okay. They ground their teeth at them. Now let's pick it up at verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, now get this, what is Stephen doing? He's doing exactly what Jesus said to do back in chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And that's exactly what's happened here with Stephen. He's full of the Holy Spirit, which had just been sent, and he's being a witness for Jesus. Boldly, strongly, courageously, when everybody else is against him. They're grind, I mean, they're grinding their teeth at him. <laughs> but he's doing exactly what Jesus told him to do in, act, in chapter 1. 
you will be my witnesses. I love that phrase. I've, I've, I've said this many times before because it's always kind of grabbed me. But you can take that statement two ways. It, it, command, you will be my witnesses. But I like to look at it as, also as a promise. A, pro, a beautiful promise. You will, you will, you won't fail. You will be my witnesses because you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And I promise you, Jesus is saying, I promise you. Trust me. Trust the Holy Spirit's coming, and I promise you, you will be my witnesses. Isn't that beautiful the way to look? I love look. Yeah, it's a command. Yeah, it, it is a command. But it's also a promise because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. You will be my witnesses. You will be. And that's exactly what Stephen is doing. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And watch this. And Jesus standing, standing at the right hand of God. He's standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So it's okay to sing songs about Jesus standing. I know many of you weren't here. One of the low points of our church history. See me after church and I'll tell you about it, okay? Um, you can't sing songs about Jesus standing because there he is, standing. He's standing. He's not always seated, okay? Yeah, that seating part, that's vital and that's important. shows that his work was finished because none of the priests... In the, under the old covenant, ever got to sit down. There were no chairs in the temple. Their work was never finished. But what did Jesus say from the cross? It is finished. Sat down. Praise the Lord. But he's not the eternal sinner. Here we see him standing. In Revelation 5, what did John say? I see a lamb standing in the midst of the throne. Who's going to open the scroll? Here he comes. And he opened the scroll. Praise the Lord. And then all of heaven burst out in praise. And we get to join in that with that every Sunday. Hallelujah. Man, there's so many spring sermons. I could, I could, man, I could go all kind of rabbit trails with this message this morning. But you're thankful I'm not, right? Okay. So Stephen sees Jesus standing. Now, why is he standing? To honor the first Christian martyr? Maybe, maybe. But I think there's even more to it than that. I think it's even more theological than that. Here's another thought for you. In a courtroom, remember we're studying advocate, defense attorney. In a courtroom, only two people stand. The prosecuting attorney, okay, the accuser, okay, spiritually that would be Satan, the accuser. And the defense attorney, at the advocate, spiritually speaking, Jesus. O only two people stand in a human courtroom. The two attorneys. Defense attorney, prosecuting attorney. The judge is always seated, right? The judge remains seated at the bench. So ponder this with me now. We're doing this together, right? We're beholding Jesus together. In his role as Son of Man and Ascended Lord, Jesus is seated at God's right hand in the place of rule and judgment. And down the road, we'll get to the name judge, okay? On this occasion, however, at the stoning of Stephen, Stephen's about to enter glory, first Christian martyr, first Christian to die for his faith. On this occasion, however, the divine, righteous judge rises from the bench and assumes the role of defense attorney for Stephen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that's the role that Jesus performs not only for Stephen, but for every single one of his people. He stands to represent you. He rises from the bench of judgment and stands to defend you. He stands to be your advocate. At the final judgment, we may be assured that our judge will also serve as our defense attorney. The fix is in, buddy. 
The fix is in through our salvation. Your judge will also be your advocate. Isn't that amazing? Your judge will be your defense attorney. He is our advocate with the Father. Man, I, listen, listen to this. This is amazing. Uh, forgive me for not putting this in the print in my manuscript, so i got to go back and find it. Okay, listen to this. Job 16. Job 16, beginning at verse 18. O earth, this is Job speaking. O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. And he who testifies for me is on high. <laughs> What's he talking about? This is before the New Testament. This is for, before, way before John wrote 1 John and, and told us about the advocate. Who is Job talking about? Well, who do you think? What does all the Bible point to? Who does all the Bible point to? Yes, Jesus. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God that he, he, okay, what's the antecedent for he? God. That he, God, would argue the case of a man with God. Let that sink in. How does God argue a case for man with God? Jesus the Son arguing our case with, Jesus, with, with God the Father, who are both God. God arguing with God. Isn't that amazing? These, this is thousands of years before. I mean, this is unbelievable. This is, this is so good that he... My eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of, as a son of man does with his neighbor. Beloved, it's got Jesus all over it. Our advocate, our defense attorney, arguing our case with God. God arguing with God on our behalf. He's mine. She's mine. I paid for their sin. They're good. They're good to go. They're in. And once again, Satan's accusations are crushed, thwarted, blocked by our advocate, King Jesus. The one who continually pleads our case before our Father. If we belong to him if we have been born again so if you haven't i got good news for you today's the day today's the day confess your sins repent and confess jesus as lord now please listen although jesus stood alone to face his accusers we never have to. We never have to. When the powers of this world, seen and unseen, condemn us, when Satan accuses us in his attempt to harass, intimidate, and devour us, Jesus is always standing alongside. Not, listen, not to protest our innocence. Because we're not. We're not innocent but to defend us as the one who has already stood trial for our sins and paid for them with his blood. Our Lord Jesus stood trial alone so that I would never be alone. He stood trial alone so that I would have, I and you, every believer would have an advocate in heaven. And would not have to stand before God on my own merit. Listen, listen. If that's what you're planning on doing. If you're planning on standing before God on your own merit. Oh man, good luck with that. 
Because our merit falls what? Way short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If, I, if I'm trying to stand before God in my deluded self-righteousness, which is nothing but filthy rags, I'm in deep weeds. Oh God, may our lives be transformed by the knowledge that no one can ever find us as God's people guilty. That we are clothed in his perfect righteousness. His atoning death provided our release from the shackles of the sin that would have condemned us forever. And his glorious ascension placed him in the wonderful position of our advocate in the courts of heaven. Praise his glorious name. Is that good or what? Is that good or what? All right, I got to speed up. Secondly, second name connected directly to the ascension of Jesus, our high priest, our high priest. Listen to Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, passed through the heavens. When did that happen? At his ascension. That's what was happening. He was passing through the heavens and he was going to the ancient of days. We're going to read about that in just a minute. Okay, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus constantly intercedes for us as our perfect, sympathetic high priest. He's interceding for us right now, right now. He's praying for us right now. When he was on earth, he alluded to this aspect of his ongoing ministry for believers in his words to Peter. Remember this story? This is a great story. Luke 22, 31 and 32. Great story. It's Peter and Jesus, you know, it's Peter and Jesus a lot, you know, Peter and Peter probably got more one-on-one time with Jesus than any any of the other apostles. And in 31, Jesus says, Simon, okay, he's been acting, he's calling him Simon, that's not good, that's not good news, okay. He's not calling him by his newly given name, Peter the Rock, now he's Simon, shifting Simon, shifty Simon, here he goes, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Look, no, when you have turned again. Not if, when. Jesus is praying for them. But here's what you need to note. In verse 31, uh, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you. Like with the use there, the two uses of the pronoun you are plural. They're plural. Okay? In other words, what is Jesus saying? Satan has demanded to have every member of the body of Christ. All of you. He wants all of you. He wants to harass, intimidate, sift. He wants to mess you all up. He wants that. All of you. But then in verse 32, the four uses of the pronoun you are, guess what? Singular. Singular. But I have prayed for you, Peter. You. You specifically. Individually, I prayed for you. And that that same is true for each one of us. Satan wants us all. He wants to wreck us all. Okay? He he doesn't want you to hear this message. He He doesn't want you to grow as a Christian. He doesn't want you to behold Jesus or fix your eyes on him. He wants us all. But guess what? Jesus is praying for each one of us individually because he knows us through and through. He knows every fiber of our being. He is praying for us individually. That's huge. In other words, Jesus, when Jesus prays for us as our high priest, he isn't praying the little kid's prayer. You know, God, bless them all. Bless the whole world. Bless the whole world. Protect the whole world. Protect them all from the enemy, Lord. Protect them all. No, he's interceding for each one of us specifically. The you is singular. By name. God, protect and strengthen Butch. Protect and strengthen Nathan. Protect and strengthen Tony. Protect and strengthen Stacy. 
Welcome to the front row. Good job. Individually, by name, because he knows your specific circumstances perfectly like no one else. So let that sink in, beloved. Just let that sink in. If we go to John 17 and read Jesus' high priestly prayer, that's where most Bibles have it headed, high priestly prayer. And, and time's not going to allow us to do that. I want to do that. But I'll just, I'll just mention some things quickly. We will discover that Jesus is not praying for everyone in the world, but only for his people. I believe verse 9 says this, I pray for these only, not for the world. He's praying for us, his people only. Okay? He's praying for God's elect, for God's sheep, for believers. And, and what's he praying? Well, in verse 11, 21, and 23, he's praying for unity. In verse 13, he's praying for our joy. I encourage you to read that high priestly prayer this week. This is what Jesus is praying for us. In verse 15, he prays for our protection from the evil one. In verse 17, he's praying for our sanctification, for our spiritual growth. And in verse 24, he prays for our ultimate, final, safe arrival into heaven. Read John 17 this week. One more word. Directly connected to ascension. He's our king. He's our king. Man, I love, I love Daniel's account of this. Daniel, Daniel saw this before it happened. He saw it before it happened. Daniel chapter 7. This passage gives me goosebumps. Let's hit it real quick. Started at verse 9. Daniel's vision. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. That's not Jesus. You say, well... He's describing like a, a, a be, it's a theoph, what theologians call a theophany. It's a visu, visible uh, uh, viewing of, of God, who is spirit, you know, who has no body, no arms, legs. He's spirit. Yeah, we know that. But we also know that throughout Scripture, God allows people to see him in a, in a unique way. Okay, and this, we know this isn't Jesus because, about, because of what we're about to read. Okay. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A, th- a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court, there's our court picture. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned by fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. We won't get into the beast this morning. Here's what I want you to see. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. So the Ancient of Days that we just read about, somebody's approaching him. One like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. And was presented before him. Now who is this? Well I think verse 14 tells us. Without even saying his name. And to him was given dominion. And glory. And a kingdom. And all peoples, nations and languages. Should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is Jesus. This is the ascension. Daniel is getting a vision of the ascension. The ascension is happening in Daniel's vision before it happened historically. Isn't that amazing? So in addition to taking his place as advocate and high priest... Jesus has also ascended to where he has been enthroned as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of all cosmic authority. 
From this position, Jesus rules and administers his kingdom, okay? His already kingdom, even though it's not yet been fully consummated. Paul articulates, I love the unity of the Bible. I've said that a trillion times. Paul articulates in the New Testament what Daniel foresaw in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 when he tells us that God raised Jesus from the dead, listen, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and upon every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Man, I think Paul knew about Daniel's writings. Listen, this truth was the closing point of Peter's first sermon. If you go to Acts 2, he preaches his sermon. And at the end, he basically says, This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And the result, verse 37 of Acts 2, many were pierced to the heart and said, just tell us what we need to do. Just tell us what we need to do. And whether you're asking that question or not, dear unsafe person, I'm telling you right now what you need to do. You need to bow the knee to Jesus and come forward and be baptized and identify with his people. Your sins will be forgiven. In Philippians 2, that classic passage, verses 5 to 11, that's how it ends, right? Because of Jesus' crucifixion, therefore God has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above all names. But the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then the kingship of Jesus is the focal point of the heavenly worship described in Revelation 4 and 5. Read it today. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. John Calvin said, quote, Being raised to heaven, he withdrew his bodily presence from our sight, not that he might cease to be with his father, followers who were still pilgrims on the earth, but that he might rule both heaven and earth more immediately by his power. Dearly beloved, let's understand something very clearly this morning. The seat at the right hand of God is no longer vacant. The coronation of the king of the kingdom of God is no longer a vague hope for the future. Just like his incarnation, just like his baptism, just like his transfiguration, just like his crucifixion, just like his burial, just like his resurrection, the ascension of Jesus happened. A historical fact. A glorious fact of God's redemptive history. 2,000 years ago, 40 days after his glory and triumphant resurrection from the dead, Jesus came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. At that point, God gave him the name above all names. He gave him dominion. He gave him glory. He gave him a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to King Jesus. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. He is the king of glory, and he reigns now and forever. Listen, whether you acknowledge it or not. So I'm encouraging you with every fiber of my being to acknowledge it today today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed tonight. You're not guaranteed the next breath. The psalmist acknowledged it in Psalm 103 verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. I'll close with the old uh, Puritan preacher and author Thomas Watson. That's one of my goals for this series, to always close with a, a quote from one of the old guys. Thomas Watson, 350 years ago, said this, Let us exalt Christ in our hearts. Oh, adore and love him. We cannot lift Christ up higher in heaven, 
but we may in our hearts. Let us exalt Him with our lips. Let us praise Him. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost. Our tongues must be the organs in these temples. By praising and commending Christ, we exalt Him in the esteem of others. Let us exalt Him in our lives by living holy lives. Remember, that's what Peter taught us in his, in his, in his letters. Let us exalt Him by living holy lives. Not all the doxologies and prayers in the world do so exalt Christ as a holy life. This makes Christ renowned and lifts him up. Indeed, when his followers walk worthy of Christ. May God help us do that for his glory and the good of our community. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Keep showing us his glory, his beauty, his wonder, his uniqueness. His love for us, His ministry to us, His care for us, His shepherding of us. Please, Lord, please open our eyes wider and wider, day by day, moment by moment, as we behold the Son of God. In His name we pray. Amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're so thankful for your presence. We don't take that for granted. And we know you're, you're here for a reason. You're here to, you were here, God wanted you to hear about Jesus a little bit. So we pray that you've done that. We pray that's been a blessing to you. And um, if you're a Christian, we want to invite you to join us in, in this communion with Jesus, this, this tangible act of, of remembering Jesus, but even more than that, of, of spiritually communing with him, with him, the risen Lord who is physically at the right hand of God right now, but who, whose presence spiritually is made real by the Holy Spirit in this communion, in this Lord's Supper. So if you're here and you're, you're not a member of RCC, but you're a Christian, you're, you're sure of your salvation, you've identified with God's people through baptism, and you're not under any kind of church discipline from a former fellowship, you haven't been cut off, uh, then we joyfully eagerly invite you to join us this morning at this table. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. <clears throat> For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for giving us this corporate activity to engage in by which we actually spiritually in a very real way commune with the one who died for us, with the one who advocates for us, with the one who intercedes as our high priest, and with the one who rules and reigns over all things. Thank you, Father, for this time at the table. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our substitute, our Savior, our Redeemer. The one to pay the price that we could have never paid. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your submission to the Father. Your perfect obedience in your earthly life, in thought, word, and deed. 
leading to your ultimate crucifixion. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. And thank you, precious Holy Spirit, for applying the work of Jesus in his life and death to our dead hearts and giving us life, giving us resurrection through our union with Jesus. We praise you and we thank you, blessed Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus, you are our ascended King, and we joyfully and gladly bow before you and thank you for this time to fellowship with you at this sacred table. So, Father, search us now and know our hearts. Try us, see if there be any wicked way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.